Welcome to Nefarious New York. I'm Allison. And I'm Meredith. We've got an interesting case or cases and how this one's going to work tonight. We're probably going to break this up into two episodes, but I'm going to release them just the usual time, which is Monday at 12 a.m. And then Tuesday at 12 a.m. I'll release the second half. It was so exciting. I just felt like it, it was. it's good to break it up just because it can get confusing too. Okay. Let's just get started because it is sort of a long one. We're going to start with Teresa Fusco, who was born in 1968 and lived with her mother, Connie, and her brother, Michael, in Lynbrook, New York, which is in Long, uh, on Long Island, correct? Yes. She also had an older brother, John, and her parents were divorced. Growing up, she took ballet and tap lessons, and she wanted to be a dance teacher. When she was around 13, she was very good friends with Kelly Morrissey. And after the two went to different high schools, their friendship ended. Not like ours. In 1984, Teresa was a junior at East Rockaway High School, and she was described as having brown hair and blue eyes. She was 5'3 and 104 pounds, so she sounds uh, pretty pretty petite, tiny. Yeah. How tall are you? I'm 5'1". Oh, Okay. So, but, but that's still, that's still that's tiny. tiny. That's, I mean, that seems tiny to me because I'm a giraffe, yes. but. Yes. Not, no, which, not that you're a giraffe. By but, the way, yes. I'm actually almost the shortest one in my family and shrinking. Congratulations. Shrinking. By Welcome the way. to aging. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, okay. I'm going to continue here. On November 11th, Teresa was supposed to go to stay with her father in Queens. She had packed her things before 16-year-old Teresa left her house and headed to work at a local ice rink, Hot Skates, which was the name of the rink. She headed there around 5.30, p.m. on November 10th, 1984. She worked there part-time at the snack bar, and she planned to go to her best friend Lisa's house, who lived only about a block away from her house after work. That night at Hot Skates, she had a fight with a coworker. I think it was a manager, actually, and she ended up getting fired that night. Hmm. There's also some reports that she had a fight with her boyfriend as well. So she was, vis- either way, she's visibly upset because either one of those things is a big deal to a 16-year-old. Yes. So she is visibly upset, crying, and she clocks out at 9.47 p.m. Okay. So Teresa didn't make it home that night, but her mother just figured that she ended up sleeping at her friend Lisa's house because she knew she was going there after work. After work. Okay. But when Teresa didn't show up the next morning to gather her things to go visit her father, her mother, Connie, reached out to Lisa to see if Teresa had overslept or if she was still there. And it was then that Connie's nightmare really began because Lisa told Connie that Teresa never came over. So the next day, they report her missing and an investigation starts. The lead detective was John Volpe. So at first, the police are really pursuing the runaway angle. And I think that's pretty common when you have a teenager who's not missing for very long. In the days and weeks after Teresa's disappearance... Connie received a number of prank calls from people who mocked her grief with false leads. So people were calling, saying they spotted her, they saw her. 
One caller was pretending to be Teresa and said, help me, mommy, help me, mommy. I'm suffocating. Like That's hot. What's wrong with people? They're disgusting. That should be a crime. It should Maybe be. It yeah. I do not have that information to know if that is or isn't, but it should be. And if it is, good. Okay. On December 5th, about a month after she disappeared, Teresa's naked body was discovered by two youths in a wooded area north of the railroad tracks near Hot Skates, so not mm. far from where she worked. Right. She was covered with leaves and one or more wooden pallets. Her face was badly beaten. She had been mm. sexually assaulted and finally strangled with a ligature, and they're assuming it was a nylon rope, and my guess is that they can tell that by the impression that it left on her neck. Yeah. Okay. So Ugh. according to the medical examiner, and we know she was sexually assaulted, based on the quantity of sperm in her vaginal cavity and the fact that, and this is a quote from the medical examiner, the tail portion of the sperm was also still attached to the sperm head, it was determined, so this is just to kind of get the timing of things. Mm-hmm. It was determined that she had been raped probably no more than 8 to 12 hours but more likely less than six hours before her death. Oh, God. Okay. And I never heard of that before. What? Like, like looking the, at the sperm? The, the, the tail portion of the sperm. And yeah, I've, I've never heard of that before. But I guess that's how they come to their conclusion. The sperm was later found to have come from a single unknown male. So just one person's sperm. Mm, okay. They tested 86 people, which it seems like a lot for a 16-year-old girl to be linked to that you would test. But her right. boyfriend that she had the fight with was one of them. And any basically any male that she had been friends with or associated with, I'm sure family, extended family, people she worked with at the, the hot skates. Mm-hmm. So it didn't match any of them. So it was 86 people. Nothing. It also didn't match any one registered in CODIS. Okay. And what is CODIS? CODIS is Combined DNA Index System. Okay. So nothing in that. I'm guessing any criminals you have. Right, right. Also, no tests were done to determine the blood type of the semen depositor. In the 80s, that would have been one way to kind of rule people out, right? Like you've got suspects yeah. and the sperm is an A positive and you got a B negative. Move on. Right. And now they're going through because normally what happens and, and you know, I've heard this on different programs and reading that obviously in a case of a murder or some kind of a, an assault, they always look first to the people that are closest to the victim. Right. right. So here they're testing. They tested 86 people. There's no match. There's no match in CODIS. So I don't know, some random person. I, I, we shall see. So this is a lead. On the night Teresa went missing, a man named John French reported that his tan Oldsmobile had been stolen. It had been parked less than a mile from Hot Skates and was taken sometime between 9.30 p.m. and 11.05 p.m. Hmm. Now, and don't forget, she left. She clocked at out at 9.47. 9.47. Okay. He ended up finding his car a week later, about a mile and a half to two miles away 
near the railroad tracks. Now, this was before Teresa's body was discovered. Okay. The windshield was smashed and the license plates had been changed. His sister found a pair of women's jeans under the passenger seat with one leg turned inside out. Mm. Rope that he had left in the backseat of the car was missing. Mm. Now, he reported all of this to the police when he did find out that Teresa's body was found. He thought maybe the two crimes might be connected. Right. That's what I would think. <laughs> yeah, it's a logical. Yeah, of course. It's, I mean, that's a, that's a very good lead. So the car was processed and hair was found that, according to Volpe, the lead detective, the hair, this is so bizarre to me, the hair was more than 50% similar to the deceased and less than 100% similar. So Okay, I got to think about that. More than 50% similar and less than 100% similar. Okay. So it's not a match, but it's not completely not a match. Right. It's really nothing. Anyway, John French was also shown a length of rope and a brown felt pouch, which was found at the crime scene. And he identified those items as belonging to him. Mm. The rope was never tested for blood and went missing. And the jeans were misplaced or thrown out. So they were never tested either. The jeans that were found under his passenger seat. Oh, my God. Who's in charge of this evidence? Um, that would be Detective Volpe. I know. But Jesus Christ. You don't test the rope and the jeans are discarded, which is which is a huge mm-hmm. clue. Right. So all of this French, this evidence about this car being stolen, that was withheld from everyone by Volpe. So the prosecution and the defense, nobody knew about this. What? When we get to a trial, if this information was presented and you are not linked to this stolen car, I would think that that's a pre- that's pretty good reasonable doubt, right? Yeah, yeah. The defense should definitely have had access to this information. Of course they should have. But wherever this led them in January of 1985, Volpe heard that a man named Harry Smile had been making suspicious statements about the murder. After an 11-hour interrogation and being told that he was a suspect, Smile told the police that John Restivo had made a suspicious statement to him about the murder. So Volpe then picks up Restivo. He was interrogated for approximately eight hours over March 5th and March 6th, and allegedly he was physically assaulted. Restivo was? Yes. Assaulted by Volpe? The officers. Yeah, the the interrogators. Okay. Okay. So Restivo then signs a statement. So this is what he said. I would like to say that sometime back, possibly November, December, 1984, I stopped by my friend Dennis Halstead's apartment. I realized that he was also high. Dennis said he was with a broad, a girl, and that he was either by a cemetery, in a cemetery, across from the cemetery. He said he tried to fuck her. Then he had to fuck her up. But when he said that, He didn't tell me how he fucked her up. He then told me that he strangled her and killed her. Okay. It's not super detailed, but that's his statement. Okay. After Restivo was released, he contacted his attorney, who called the Homicide Bureau and informed them that he was representing Restivo and Halstead, 
and objected to the interrogation as coercive. I mean, it makes sense. I think, I mean, I think just being in there for eight hours or 11 hours. Without a lawyer, without... And if he was assaulted, that also could be coercive as well. Yes, I would say whatever, just to get out of there. Yeah. Well, on March 21st, 1985, the police officers came to the home of John Kogut, who worked with Restivo and Halstead, and asked him to come to the police station for questioning in relation to Teresa's murder. Kogut complied, but he denied knowledge of the crime. He was just interrogated for a little while, then he agreed to come back and take a polygraph. He returned on March 25th. He took the polygraph, and although he passed, the police told him that he had failed. What? Kogut testified that We Volpe... saw this in another case. Yep. Okay. Kogut testified that Volpe and another detective screamed at him, threatened him, and told him that they had scientific evidence, witnesses, and statements demonstrating that he had committed the crime. That Kogut did? Yes. Okay. And he's being told that he failed the polygraph. Right. But this guy, Restivo, is also saying that Halstead did it. All right. Well, let's see where this goes. According to Kogut, Volpe, that's the detective, stated to him, I'm going to tell you how you did it because I already know how it happened. Volpe then told various stories until Kogut finally gave in and agreed. Volpe wrote out the confession, which Kogut signed at approximately 9 a.m. on March 26th. So here is his statement, and I took out a lot of stuff. My name is John Kogut. I am 21 years of age, being born on November 29th, 1963. And then here he acknowledges that he was read his rights and all that nonsense. I would like to say that sometime back in November 1984, about a week or two before my birthday, I was with these two guys. One was John Restivo, who I worked for, and the other was Dennis Halstead, a guy from Lynbrook, I know, who also worked for Restivo. On this night, it was between 8 p.m. and 10 p.m. I was with John Restivo and Dennis Halstead in John's van, and we were drinking beer and smoking pot. There's a girl walking on Merrick Road by the cemetery and heading towards McDonald's. John pulls up and stops alongside her. John and Dennis were saying, let's see if she wants to party, meaning maybe smoke or have some beers. Either John or Dennis invited her in, not to party, but for a ride home. I then open the side door and I see this girl. She was about 15 or 16 years old, dark hair, medium long. She had on a a blue denim dungaree jacket, I think a dark top, dark pants, and white high top sneakers. Dennis, as John's driving around, says to the girl, you want to party? Forget about getting fired. Do you want to do the right thing? Do the right thing on the street means to get laid. With that, she said, stop the fucking van. Let me out. Dennis then jumped out of his seat and grabbed her. The girl started screaming, leave me alone. Let me out. She was fighting Dennis, but he was too big for her and had a good grip on her. As I moved up to where she and Dennis were, she turned on me and smacked me in the face. With this, I freaked out. I got crazy and I punched her with my left fist, hit her on the right side of her face. She falls out of Dennis's grip to the floor of the van. I jumped on her upper body and she was trying to throw punches and kicks. At this point, Dennis started taking off her pants and underpants and I was taking her jacket, shirt, and bra. I'm telling her to shut up, calm down, and I realized that Dennis had put his penis inside of her. I held her upper body down. At this point, she wasn't fighting too much. John had stopped the van, yelled back to me and Dennis, let me get a piece. I looked down at her and she was almost unconscious. 
John was now fucking her while she was unconscious. And I got out the side door and I took a blanket out that was in the van. I spread it out on the ground. Dennis and John then carried her out of the van and laid her face up on the blanket. Now she starts to regain consciousness. She was a little dazed, but she was saying, I gotta tell, I gotta tell, and she was crying. She was still laying on the blanket with no clothes on. Dennis, John, and I decided she had to be killed. I got on top of her, put my knees on her shoulder, and covered her mouth. My back was to John and Dennis, and one of them threw me a rope. One of them said, do what you gotta do. I took the rope, which was a hard nylon rope. I wrapped it double around her neck, then I twisted it like a corkscrew. I twisted it for a few minutes until her body went limp, and I felt she was dead. I rolled her body up in the quilt, and I threw her over my shoulder into the van. So then he just goes on to say... They put her in the van, then they started to drive, and they found a place, and they basically carried her out, rolled her out of the blanket, and um, covered her up. So I have a couple of issues with that. Okay. One, didn't they say that it was one man, one person that raped her? Well, they have one sperm, yes. One sperm. So unless one of them did not ejaculate, that's two people. Correct. The other thing is, well, he's in, I don't know how, how much this counts, but the story that John was saying initially that he wasn't with Dennis. Restivo was saying that, right. Restivo. So now this guy is saying that the three of them were together. Those are my main issues right now. It's not lining up with the way they were trying to present it from the beginning. Right. And, and it's it's very possible that... You know, the one guy, even though he was there, is trying to say he wasn't there, but the stories are n- definitely not matching. Agreed. Okay. Now the police take Kogut to the crime scene and they want him, I mean, he's confessed already, so they want him to lead them to some evidence or where he had taken her jewelry off or her clothing, where any of it was, and he, he couldn't lead them to anything because... Maybe he doesn't know or he's lying. So... Kogut also gave a videotaped confession confirming that he had been advised of and understood his constitutional rights and repeating the above story in material part. Kogut was then arrested and indicted on three counts, first-degree rape, second-degree murder in the course of rape, and intentional second-degree murder. But Kogut did not admit to raping her, correct? Correct. In the written statement, but now he's getting indicted on first-degree rape. Am I missing something? No, I'm. I'm not sure if just because you're there, you're if you're present or participating in holding someone down or. Right. Restivo's van. This is where this was all supposed to take place, right? Mm-hmm. It was seized pursuant to a warrant soon after this statement. The van was up on blocks and not drivable. We also saw this in that case. Yes. Same thing. So they search the van, and they find hairs in the van. Several of these hairs, and they're calling them the questioned hairs or Q hairs, Mm -hmm. were determined to be consistent with Teresa's hairs. Okay. These hairs provided the only forensic evidence linking Restivo and Halstead to the crime. 
Did they do that with a stolen vehicle? No, right? Because it's not, it hasn't really come into question. I guess he, uh, Volpe left that to himself. Yes. Nobody really knows about that. But these hairs are consistent with her hairs. I wonder if my hairs are consistent with your hairs because they're both brown. Like, what does consistent with her hairs mean? Right. And the, uh, and the, uh, who knows? So Restivo and Halstead were then also arrested and indicted with counts of first degree rape, second degree murder in the course of rape, and intentional second degree murder. Restivo and Halstead were tried jointly. Restivo and Halstead were convicted of all counts and each was sentenced to 33 and one-third years to life. Following a jury trial, Colgate was convicted on all counts and was sentenced to serve 37 and one-half years to life in prison. He gave the confession, so... Mm -hmm. I'm going to think that explains why he got a bit more time. Right, because he's the only one that's really confessing, correct? Obviously, there are a billion other facts and things in play here. But just to summarize the questionable things, Mm -hmm. we've got one unknown male seaman, two people in the confession. Right. We've got this van that's up on blocks. Did they test the other guys to see if the DNA, the semen matched? No. Ugh, why not? Um, this is like a shit investigation. Terrible. So as of now, the three of them are going to jail for Teresa's assault and murder. And then we're going to be back tomorrow and discuss what happens going forward. Okay. You want to sing us out? Not, not really. So to be continued, we'll be back tomorrow to get some sort of resolution to this Insanity? <laughs> <laughs>